Crossway Church Sermon Audio. We're going to be in uh, Isaiah 61 through 62 today. You may remember last week when I mentioned that everyone wants to be part of something great, something grand, the desire to be part of something significant, useful, or even great. It's built into the essence of humanity. We're designed for, um, for far more than self-absorbed pursuits or shallow pleasures or insignificant interactions. Everyone wants to be part of the championship team. That's why cities go so crazy when their team wins that championship. It's a taste, a taste of glory. Everyone wants to be involved in work that matters, that has substance to it. Everyone wants to be part of a company that's making the lives of, lives of its customers better, a company that makes a difference. And here's the secret that these things reveal. We, humans, people, we were purpose-built for glory. Purpose-built for glory. We're made for something Great, we yearn for significance. But the tricky thing about this, this yearning, this desire, this, this design, the tricky thing about it is that we cannot achieve a significant life by following the wisdom of the mob or the world or what's sometimes called main, the mainstream, mainstream thinking. Nor can we tap into the greatness that we want to be a part of by making ourselves great. We can't tap into that greatness by trying to make ourselves great either in our own eyes or in the eyes of other people. And we can't satisfy our desire to be connected to glory by pursuing our own glory. Now these pursuits, they're the way of the fallen. They're the pathway to destruction. No, the only way to fulfill our created purpose and connect to glory is to reflect and to enjoy the glory of the one who made us and the one who saved us. We shine forth the glory of Christ. We talked about it. it's like the moon to the sun. We're like the moon to the sun. The Lord is the sun and we have no light of our own, but we shine forth his glory. And that's how we're connected to this design to be made for glory. We shine forth the glory of Christ. That is where fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and all good is found for the human. Let me propose it like this this morning. Delight in the glories of salvation. Delight in the glories of salvation. If I could have that first slide, please. Delight in the glories of salvation as our Lord is glorified more and more. Delight in the glories of salvation as our Lord is glorified more and more. Let me just pause to mention that at the end of our meeting today, we're going to partake of the Lord's table. We're going to come to the Lord's table. That's a perfect way to respond to the Word of God. So please, even now, begin to prepare your heart uh, to come to the Lord's table. Now, in Isaiah chapters 60 through 62, we're going to focus on 61 and 62, but last week we covered in part chapter 60. 
and in chapters 60 to 62, we're meditating about the glory of Zion. Zion was originally, apparently, originally a location very close to Jerusalem, and it ended up over the hundreds and thousands of years, ended up becoming synonymous with Jerusalem. So when the scriptures refer to Zion, it's referring to Jerusalem essentially, but it also takes on the word Zion, it takes on an end time spiritual sense. And so Zion is sort of like Jerusalem glorified. And that's what we're going to focus on here in chapters 61 to 62. Jerusalem in its greatest spiritual sense. Jerusalem in its ultimate eschatological sense. Jerusalem glorified. And so to give us context, remember that the Israelites had been defeated. I always love it when I have to battle with uh, some electronic device on a Sunday morning. It happens, I understand, but uh, anyway, I just wanted to pause till it was over. So give us context. Remember that the Israelites had been defeated in stages by surrounding nations. Then, after they were defeated by the surrounding nations, they were carried off into exile. But now, the Lord is promising, through the prophet Isaiah, to redeem them and to return them to the land. And when the Lord returns them to the land, they're, they're, they're exiled in Babylon at this point. And when He returns them to the land, when He returns them to Jerusalem, to Zion, He also promises to make Zion glorious. And He does make Zion glorious. And these promises would have been taken to the heart by the Israelites, as they should have been, by the devout at the time that Isaiah prophesied them, they would have been taken to heart. But, let's not make a mistake, the language used here to talk about the glory that's going to come to Zion, it's, it's too great, it's too universal, it's too comprehensive. It clearly goes beyond their immediate situation. The language here is eschatological or It's talking about the end, the end of the age, the end times. It's talking about something even greater. It's talking about what's to come within the decades to Jerusalem. But it's also talking about what's to come to us. As all the nations come to Christ Jesus, as the church gathers. And it's also talking about the fulfillment of all things, what's to come at the end of of the age. There are ultimate glories being promised here in Isaiah chapters 60 through 62. In fact, if you go to uh, chapter 60, if you have your Bible, you go to chapter 60. At the very beginning of that, if you have an ESV, probably in the NIV as well, there's probably a heading. It's not inspired. It's, it's the people that put that, this Bible together. They try to help us understand the sections. And so there might even be a section heading that says something like, the glory to come to Zion. And so you can see that chapter 60 to 62 is really talking about the glory that's going to come. Now we're going to focus on chapters 61 to 62. Now I'm encouraging us today to delight in or to enjoy the glories of the salvation of God. We see them in what's promised to Israel at the time. But we also realize that they go beyond what's promised to Israel at the time. 
and they apply to us. They apply to our salvation in Christ Jesus. The salvation that God has granted us is glorious. And we have to enjoy those glories. Now, I want you to think about, I want to make this as simple as we can. And for someone like myself, a simple person like myself, well, that probably means you need to connect it to food. And so, I'm thinking, think about a pastry you enjoy. I know some of you don't eat sweets or don't eat pastry. Okay, fine. Most of us do. Think about something you like to eat. Think about a pastry you enjoy. I'm going to think about a cannoli. A cannoli with a nice cup of coffee. Now, when I have that cannoli with that hot cup of coffee in front of me, how am I going to enjoy that? Am I going to down that thing as quickly as I can? Am I going to shove that thing down my throat as fast as possible? Is that how I'm going to enjoy it? No, that's not the best way to enjoy anything, to get it over with as quickly as you can. No, it's more enjoyable when it's savored, when we take our time with it, when we share it with others. You get the idea. This morning we're going to take a little time, we're going to enjoy the glories of the salvation of our Lord. And we're going to do that now, but we, we want to do that in the days going forward. We want to do that in the years to come, in the, in the life that God gives us. There are challenging things in life. Life can be hard, especially for the Christian. We face difficulties, but we're not without delights and pleasures and joys. Oh my goodness, the glories of salvation. Let's delight in them and enjoy them. So, we're going to take our text in two points. First, let's spend some time actually delighting in the glories that we see here. I think I've, I've got a little challenge here. Thank you. Oh, there we go. Wait. There we go. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt. Delighting in the glories. Let's savor these glories of our Lord's salvation. So, so we see here the theme of restoration again. The theme of restoration. We talked about restoration a little bit last week. And before I read this verse, keep in mind that the reason that there's devastation that needs restoration, the reason why Jerusalem had been run over and they had been run out of town, the Israelites had been exiled, the reason that happened, the reason there was devastation in their case, and in our case as well, and in this world, in general, and oftentimes in specific circumstances, is because there was sin. God's people had sinned. And God doesn't just wipe them out, but He does bring consequences to them. God's people were culpable, and the devastation that they faced was an appropriate consequence for the rebellion, but then God takes away the obstacle of the consequence of sin, takes that away so that he can completely restore his people and his salvation. So look at Isaiah chapter 61. Go to verse 4. Look at verse 4. Let me read that. They, the Israelites, shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And so all the sin over all the years in Israel's history came to fruition in the devastation of Jerusalem. God's consequences poured out on them, but now He's going to take them away. Notice that 
that the Israelites are the ones that are going to go and do the work. And that's a rather sobering thing. Can you imagine returning to Jerusalem and saying, oh my goodness, there it is. But it wouldn't just be sober. It would be sobering. And we are to be sobering in life. But it's more than that. It's can you believe we're here again and we get to rebuild And so as they're removing the stones that had been fallen down to see what what can be saved and used again for new buildings and new construction to rebuild what had been torn down, there's a sobriety. You can imagine a, a, a a quiet settled over the people working. But you can also see that they're energized in the work, aren't they? And they're going about what God's called them to. And there's a hope in them. That stirs them and energizes them. It's a good note because sometimes the Lord restores in our life. He brings restoration outside of our efforts. Outside of our efforts. All of a sudden, boom, there, there's blessing in our life that we couldn't have brought into our lives ourselves. But other times and many times, He employs us in the work of restoration. So, when you find yourself at that point in your, in your own life, after you've repented of sin, and you see the grace of God at work, and you know His mercy again, and you're in that place where restoration can happen. Yes, be sobered. Learn the lessons. But go forward in hope and rebuild. And have joy and hope in what God has done. Not only is there restoration, but another glory of the salvation that the Lord has given us is mediation. Mediation. You may remember that in the old covenant system, the priests and the Levites did not receive a portion of the land like the other tribes of Israel. This, this might have struck you from time to time. As you read through the Old Testament, I mean, tell the truth. When you come to the, to the, uh, the dividing of the inheritance, the, the promise that God gives, it's, it's like, okay, you know, all the people groups, all the tribes, all the twelve tribes of Israel, are going to get a, a, a large tract of land. And then they're supposed to divide that land up by the families. And each family is supposed to receive a portion of land that's supposed to be theirs forever. That's awesome, right? Unless you're in the priestly class. Unless you're a Levite. They didn't receive any land. That always struck me as kind of a bummer. Kind of a downer. But it's not. And do you know why? Because the priests, the Levites, they were the ones who worked most closely to the presence of God. They worked on the tabernacle and the priests from the Levitical clan, they ministered before the Lord. And so they didn't get land because their inheritance was God. Now, let's just pause right there. Because sometimes I think we can look around at the world and say, oh, you know, look at the, the, the people that are unbelievers and, the, and look at what they have. And, and it seems like they have more than us. Oftentimes, Christians can feel that way. But is that the case? No, because we are the ones that have God. See, one of the big lessons for the Christian in life 
is that the blessing of God and the inheritance of God and, and the good uh, uh, blessing, the good thing that we have most of all is God Himself, is the Lord Himself. Have you adjusted your eyes to see it that way? What do you get most excited about? What are you, what are you most happy about gaining in your life? Shouldn't it be the presence of God? Because that is what we are given. And so, in the old system, the priest and the Levite worked in the presence of God. But in the new covenant, all of God's people are priests, near to the Lord, with continual access to His presence. Look at verses 5 and 6. Go to Isaiah chapter 61 and look at verses 5 to 6. Let me read that for you. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory you shall boast. You see, this is why we don't have priests today. We don't have priests in Protestantism, in Christianity. We have elders in our church or pastors, synonymous, pastor or elder. We use that. We have that office. We see that in the New Covenant. But we don't have priests. Why don't we have priests? We don't have priests because all of God's people, all of us, all of you, everyone who's come to trust Jesus Christ, you are a priest of God in Christ Jesus. We have the one high priest, the one great high priest, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. But under Him we're all priests of God. In other words, every one of us has access and serves before the Lord. And so we have access to His presence in a way that those in the Old Covenant did not have. And we're not simply to use our access to the Lord for our own good, though it certainly has that benefit. When we're close to Him, we get to enjoy Him. Now we have a real mediating work to do. You and I, all of us, and all of us together, the church of Christ, we have a mediating work to do. We mediate Jesus Christ to this world. Not that we atone for sin. But we're the ones saying He's real, he, He's given Himself for us, His salvation is, is powerful, it's mighty to save, you can be forgiven of your sins, let us tell you about Him. We're the ones saying that to the world about Him. That's why. That's why we, we don't just let the world tell the church how the church ought to behave or when the church ought to meet or how the church ought to meet. Because we have been given by God the responsibility to mediate to the world. Hey, we are the followers of Jesus Christ. Hey, we shine the light brightly. Hey, our meeting says to everyone out there, Jesus is alive. And if you trust Him, you'll know the benefits and the glories of salvation as well. So we have to keep that light shining, don't we? And when you look at this here, you see that strangers and foreigners, they're going to take care of the responsibilities of God's people. Why? So that God's people are free to minister. Now, now that's not meant as an excuse for anyone now to quit their job. 
But it is to say to us, what is our primary occupation? Our primary occupation is to proclaim Jesus Christ in this world. That's our primary occupation. The glories of salvation continue beyond restoration and mediation to inheritance. So look at verses 7 to 9. Isaiah 61, verses 7 to 9. Inheritance. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring. The Lord has blessed. You see, not only in Israel, but also in other ancient cultures, the firstborn son would receive a double portion of inheritance. That sounds pretty sexist, doesn't it? Just the firstborn son? Well, it's not completely sexist, is it? Because that means that the other sons didn't get a double portion either. They only got a single portion of the inheritance. Even the wife only got a single portion. And so it's not simply sexism because when you have the potential of being wiped out by some raiding band that, that sees you as an a, a easy and juicy target, and if you don't have the power to negotiate for things like food during a famine or other resources that your clan needs, you've got a problem. So someone has to have the bulk of the family wealth. It has to be consolidated in some way. And some strength has to be gathered, and it has to be built up and passed along so that the family, so that the community, the clan, can continually build strength for the survival of that community. And that responsibility fell to the firstborn son. And that was a big reason for the double portion. That firstborn son received a greater responsibility, so he also received a greater honor. He received the double portion. And the Lord is saying, you, my people, are my eldest son, in a sense. He's saying, Israel is my eldest son, and I will place upon you the greatest honor. Now, we know that the Lord Jesus is the ultimate eldest son, but we're in him. And so we enjoy the inheritance, the great inheritance, the greatest honor along with him. Think about these glories. You aren't just anyone to God. When you trust Jesus Christ, you're in the Son. Every single one of us, regardless of our position on this earth, regardless of our standing in the eyes of people, in the eyes of God, every one of us who belongs to Jesus Christ we, we gain the inheritance. We have the inheritance of being in the Son. And that's an incredible, glorious blessing that comes through salvation. I want to move quickly uh, through the next two just because uh, of time. And so what I want to do is just make a quick comment. And I'm going to mention it to you and make a quick comment. But I want to read the whole passage so that you get a sense of it. And so that we get through all of chapter 61 and 62 today, God's Word. So another glorious benefit of our salvation is preservation. 
So in the past, God's people sinned and then they faced the consequences. And part of that was God took away the blessings he formerly gave them. And he did that to teach them and to train them. But a time is coming when God's blessings will never be removed from his people ever again. And you see that removal of the blessing, right? When, when Israel is exiled, that's a pretty severe consequence. But then God restores them. And you and I have experienced, because of our sin from time to time, we have experienced the consequences of having blessings removed. Never as bad as exile, I don't think. But nonetheless, we've experienced that. But a time is coming when His blessings will never be removed from us. Think about that. The eternal presence of the blessing of God on your life. We experience now to some degree... But a time is coming when that will never change. So look at Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 through 9. 62, 6 through 9. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. God will preserve us. He'll preserve the blessings He gives to us. He'll give us the power to enjoy what we've labored for. Let me move quickly to a last one for now, and, and, and that's inclusion. Inclusion. And so we want to delight in inclusion. We are included. Let me ask you, do you feel excluded? Do you ever feel excluded? Sometimes people come to church and they say, I just don't feel like I can connect. And, and I get that. I understand what you mean by that. I understand the feeling. But sometimes we feel that way and we need to be adjusted. We need to adjust our own thinking because it's not the reality. Other times it is reality and people are excluding us. But here's what we need to understand. Even if people are excluding us and that's a painful thing when it happens... When the Lord saves you, you will never be excluded from Him. You will never be excluded from participation in the Holy Spirit. You will never be excluded from participation in His glories of salvation. You'll never be excluded from participation in the inheritance. When the Lord saves us, we're never excluded. So look at chapter 62 now. Chapter 62 Verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Oh, let that sink in. Let that sink in. For anyone who feels excluded, for anyone who feels like they're on the outside, for anyone who feels like they don't belong, do you know what God's saying? 
Once you have his salvation in Christ Jesus, when you turn to Christ Jesus, you're someone that he seeks out. And so, hey, if you feel excluded today, maybe take a step back. Maybe your thinking needs to be adjusted. But I also encourage you, if you feel that way, to put that feeling aside and embrace the reality that where it matters most, you're not someone who's excluded. You're someone who is completely, wholly included in the family of God and in the work of God. And don't be shaken, but instead delight in the glory of His salvation. Delight in the glories of salvation. Can I have that next slide, Kurt? Delight in the glories of salvation as our Lord is glorified more and more. And then let us consider, I'll take the next slide, the glory of the Lord. One of the great themes in salvation is that we, the people of God, are so loved by the Lord that we're actually likened to a bride. And when you think of that, it makes perfect sense because the greatest expression of love in the human relational experience is that of a husband for a wife. Proper, a proper love for a husband for a wife. It should be at least, right? That's the way it should be. That in the marriage covenant, in the marriage relationship, the love of a husband for his wife should be the greatest love that we can see on this earth. And of course, really that love of a husband to a wife is really a picture of a greater mystery, right? Paul writes by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. And what we learn, what's revealed to us, is that the love of a husband for a wife is really a picture of the greatest love of all. And that's the love of the Savior for His people. And that's why the Lord is likened to the, the bridegroom. And His people, or the church, is likened to a bride. Uh, not a bribe, a bride. And you get a sense of that in Isaiah chapter 62. You get a sense where Isaiah is exalting in the Lord's salvation of his people. You get a sense of that theme of the Savior, the Lord being the bridegroom and the one he saves, his people being the bride. Let me read that for you in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. So Isaiah 52 62, 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. See that? The the bridegroom gives the bride a new name. That's part of why we do the... Uh, we, we, that's part of why the, the bride takes on the last name of the bridegroom. That's part of the reason why we do that. Verse 3, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called basically married. 
And I'll just pause here to mention where it says married there. Some of you may remember the old term Beulah. Your, your land will be Beulah land. Or your land will be Beulah. It means, it means married. But that phrase worked its way and there's even songs about Beulah land. Some of the old hymns refer to that. Some of us may remember that. Well, this is where it comes from. And your land married. So middle of verse 4. For the Lord delights in you... And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your, shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Notice those last two lines again. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Those two lines, this whole, all these lines, they proceed from and they lead us here today to show us how we ought to rejoice and delight in the glories of our Lord's salvation. In other words, that God's love for us, the Savior's love for us, is as strong as, is stronger than, is the, is the, is the, is the, um, is the uh, <laughs> words escape it's the way it ought to be between a bridegroom and the bride and so I want to read for you the, the end of chapter 61 because it's a song of delighting in the salvation of God and again you're going to see the marriage theme here you're going to see that bridegroom love to the bride and the bride delighting in that love. That's God's people. That's us. The glories of His salvation. Look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10 through 11. I will rejoice. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You see that here? You have the bridegroom. The bridegroom, he, he's getting himself ready like a priest, a, a priest properly adorned, a priest in, in all of his purity, going to perform his duties before God, this devotion that he has to perform. And as that priest goes out, and then the bride adorns herself with jewels, makes herself as beautiful, as pure as possible to present herself. And as this happens, as it transpires, there's this idea of an incredible garden. It's, it's it's a metaphor upon a metaphor. It's, it's the, the beauty and the production of an incredible garden. And it sprouts up beautiful fruit. And it's likened to this. That for God's people who have been saved and delight in the glories of His salvation... Just as the, a beautiful garden, a good garden, a productive garden brings up its fruit and its vegetables, its produce for all to delight in. God's people, when they understand the glories of salvation that we get to delight in, we produce all manner of righteousness before God and praise. And in that way we bring Him glory. 
That's what we're supposed to be, church. A church delighting in the glories of His salvation. To the, to the upspringing of beauty and production that brings Him glory on the earth. All of this delight is because God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. It's also amazing. But it's also important that we pause to consider how does God bring about the salvation? Well, we know it's through the bridegroom. It's through the Savior. And as we've gone through Isaiah, as we talked about last week, we, we've seen that Savior in the, in the role of the suffering servant. We've seen that Savior in the, in the promise of a child who will be named Emmanuel, God with us. We've seen that Savior as, as a king that's described who's a Savior to His people, but is described in such a manner as, as to make us know that this is far beyond just a human king. And, and also, we've heard the Savior described, like in last week, as a divine warrior who's so committed to purifying and bringing about righteousness in His people that He will enter into the fight that we have in our hearts against sin, and He will cut down that sin. This is the Savior. And here, we're going to learn more about that Savior So now go to the beginning of the passage that we're looking at today. Look at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And here, Isaiah's speaking, but he's speaking about something beyond him. He's speaking the words from the mouth of the Savior, the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That He may be glorified. Can you find yourself in this? The Lord has come for you. So that you could... He's come to us, right? The poor... He's come to us and, 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 and He preaches the good news to us. He's come to us, those in the prison of sin, so that He can release us from the prison. He's, he's come to us, the brokenhearted, the hopeless, so that we can be bound up and have hope in life. He's come to us, the captives, so that we can have freedom in Him. He's come to us to proclaim to us favor over us. And though we used to mourn, now we rejoice and we prepare ourselves as a bride prepares herself for the wedding day. You know why He does this? He does this so that we could become something that over time would get established and grow strong and become mature 
and be unshakable and be undeniable. He does this so that we could become oaks of righteousness. Do you remember that throughout Isaiah, trees are mentioned? You know, at certain points, it talks about uh, the trees that the, that the pagans use and, and, and the idea that, that God's people had become paganized. And so they take these trees and they use them to build things and to build, to build idols. But these trees will be dried up. They'll be like tinder to be burned up. And, and trees are talked about when it comes to, to forming idols. But trees are also talked about when it comes to the beauty and the glory of God. So, so that metaphor is used. But we also hear about trees being used, the cedars of Lebanon, which were used to build the temple of God. That, that, that metaphor comes back. All throughout Isaiah is this theme of trees being used. Well, here, here you know who's being likened to trees? God's people. And not some scrub tree, not some, some, some tree that sprouts out in every direction and, and it has no presence, has no nobility, doesn't have beauty and has not much life and it, it jumps up quickly but is not strong. Oh no, you and I are meant to be oaks. We're meant to take a long time to get established with roots that go as deep as we go tall. And we're meant to be undeniable in that, in that when the world sees us, it, you, you can't miss it. It's an oak. It's a hundred years old. It's, it's a hundred feet tall. It's, it's massive. That's what you and I are to become on the earth. And not just you and I individually. And not even you and I primarily individually. But all together as God's people, Crossway Church to be an oak of righteousness in this world. All because of who the Savior is. Delight in the glory, the glories of salvation as our Lord is glorified more and more. You know, this whole idea of us becoming oaks of righteousness, why is it? I mean, an oak tree, a mighty oak, is a pretty glorious thing, isn't it? has its own glory. You look at it, it's just amazing to behold. Oh my, look at that. It's massive in its scope. It's strong. But it says we're to become oaks of righteousness so that He, this great Savior, this divine warrior, this suffering servant, our Lord Jesus is to be glorified. That's why. I want to ask the ushers to come. Ushers, would you please come and immediately begin passing out the elements that we can partake in communion together here in just a moment. And as we're beginning to prepare our hearts, I want to draw your attention to something that happened in the New Testament. You remember John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last of the old covenant prophets. The transition from the old to the new covenant. He's the one preparing the way for this divine warrior, this suffering servant, this Savior Lord who would preach the gospel to the poor like us. And so John goes out and he's doing his ministry and he's already had this moment where, where Jesus comes by and he points to Jesus and he says, there he is, he says, look, behold, look, 
The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There He is. He's the one. In other words, John has already fully identified Jesus as the Savior. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's even said things like, He must increase, Jesus, and I must decrease. My ministry must, it must fade into the night. His must rise like the sun. He even says things like, I'm not worthy to tie together the sandals on his feet. He acknowledges all that. You get the sense that John's ministry may have gotten harder, right? Because he's preaching against uh, the king and some of his immorality. He's coming under fire. Many of his disciples leave him to follow Jesus, as he said, I must decrease, he must increase. It's possible that this portion I'm about to read to you, it's possible John was already in prison when he asked this question. It wouldn't be long before John would be executed, beheaded, for daring to tell the king that he was immoral and that he needed to repent. It wasn't right for him to do what he was doing. And so somewhere in there, somewhere in there, John sends, he calls two of his disciples to him. He sends them to Jesus with the question, with a question about the identity of Jesus. And he must have doubted some. Think about this. John the Baptist, having some doubts, maybe seeing that he's near the end, and having some doubts and wanting to be sure that his ministry wasn't led astray, that he wasn't off, that he was leading people in the right path in repentance to God and in pointing them to Jesus. And so he sends these disciples to Jesus with the question about his identity. And, and, and that question is this, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to look for another? You get the sense of how desperate in the sense that John must have been like, ah, send someone to him. Go to him and ask him. Ask him outright. Is he the one? I, I was sure of it at one time. Go ask him if he's the one. And Jesus, well, we can imagine the predicament, right? What, is, what should Jesus have said there? Should he have said, oh, oh yeah, I'm the one. Go tell him I'm the one. He could have done that. But for a man like John who knew the scriptures, knew them well, devoted his life to the glory of God, it would not have had the same effect as what Jesus did. And do you know what Jesus does? He quotes to him the prophet. And so in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus answered them. He says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised. And then he uses this line. The poor, the poor have good news. Preach to them. Which comes right out of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3.
Jesus said, oh yeah, John, I'm the one. I know that scripture. I know what God was saying when he prophesied through Isaiah about the Savior that is to come. He'll bind up the heart of the, the brokenhearted and set the captive free. And he'll preach good news to the poor. I'm the one. I know that passage and I'm doing it. Have your disciples, two of them, they'll testify and tell you what they're seeing, what they're hearing from me, and they'll go back to you and they'll reassure your soul, brother, that I am the Savior. You see how good Jesus was to John. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.